This morning is December, December 30th, 2007. It is our last service of the year. Our message this morning is called, I Have a Dream. We're going to be in the book of Deuteronomy and the 29th chapter. And for fun, the 29th verse. I have a dream. Amen. If you've got a cell phone, turn it off. <laughs> Y'all ready? Everybody's in Deuteronomy 29? We refer to this sometimes as the honey book. That's a nickname for it. Do you know why the honey book? Because when children were young, in the patriarchal days on up to the New Testament time period, the elders would squeeze the drippings of ripe dates, which is biblical honey, into the mouths of children as they read the book of Deuteronomy so that they would see that the Word of God was sweet to the taste. Everything that God has for us is good. Even if it's bitter in your stomach and hard to swallow, it is good and it should taste good to us because the results are good. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may follow all the words of this law. There are secrets, things that only God knows and we don't. But there are other things that God Himself from the third and most high heaven has chosen to reveal to us lowly, humble people. And those things, they belong to us. And friends, we've been entrusted with them. They are worth fighting for. They are worth holding on to. They are worth memorizing and most of all, passing along to our children. Because the things that God has given us, we do not want to be lost in one generation. Turn with me to the Proverbs. We will be in Proverbs 25 and the second verse. 25th chapter, second verse. The secret things belong to God. The things revealed belong to us. How many church services have you sat in in your life? How many times has the Word of God been preached to you? How many times has something come alive off of a page to impact your life? That belongs to you, saints. God's gift to you to reshape your life, to put you on the right track, to get you to change your direction, to find an abundant and fruitful kind of life. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is to the glory of God to conceal a matter. If a matter is concealed, what is that? A secret thing. To search out a matter is to the glory of kings. Since even the secret things that belong to God, He is revealing to us if we are noble enough to search for them. If you want to know what happens at the end of a television series like Lost, you watch every episode. If you want to know who won, who's going to win the American Idol, you watch every episode and you might even read up online or watch some other documentary about it. If you want to know more about God, we need to invest more in His kingdom. We need to look into His Word more. We need to ask Him. We need to be contemplating His nature and His moving and His working in our life. Another way to say it is God needs to be on your mind. It is a noble thing for the God of the universe to reveal things to us. Turn with me to Matthew 16. This morning I probably will not teach you a thing that is new. And yet, if you do this, if you grab hold of this, if you possess it in increasing measure, you will not be unproductive in your faith. This is a surefire, absolute formula for living a successful life. Clinging to God. Searching Him out. Taking hold of what He has given you and treating it as, oh, I don't know, like a merchant who found a pearl in a field and went and sold everything he had to possess it. I'm telling you, he has the words of life, and there is none other but him. There is no way for salvation, restoration, deliverance, outside of what he reveals to you. 
And in Matthew 16, standing in Caesarea Philippi, a temple to Augustus in the background, temple to all the foul pagan Roman gods, Jesus asked the question, Who do people say the Son of Man is? In the 14th verse, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Those were all the product of deductive reasoning. Those are all the product of the natural intellect. Who could Jesus be? Well, Jesus could be a prophet. And aren't there people today that operate in their mere natural instinct that say he's a prophet? Most of the world religions don't deny that he was a prophet. If you were looking objectively at the circumstances, having a belief in God and the supernatural, could you say he was John the Baptist? Well, they had the same message. John the Baptist was now dead and Jesus was still here. People believe in reincarnation. My neighbor does. These are all the products of a natural mind's ability to reason. The most important question comes in the 15th verse. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? That's a question worth contemplating. Not just is Jesus your Savior. Not just is He Lord. But who is He to you in each and every scenario? Each and every setting. Who is He to you when you sign in at work, when you hit the punch-in clock? Who is He to you when you're alone with your kids in the car? Who is He to you when you're alone with nobody around? Who is He to you? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ. That means the Anointed One. The Son of the Living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. There are secret things, things that the rest of the world is incapable of understanding, that if you are noble enough to seek out, God will pour out even into the heart of a child things that are worth dreaming about, things that are worth investing in. You know, what man dreams can change the destiny of a society. What would it have been like if a human being didn't look out at the ocean one day and go, I bet we can cross it. I know everybody says we can't. I know they say there are monsters there and we'll sail off the edge of the ocean. But what would have happened if somebody didn't dare dream that they could do it? Where would we be? A guy walks in and has a revelation about a peanut and has a hundred inventions for the rest of mankind to enjoy. Archimedes enjoys mathematics, staring at a shadow one day. His theories and his formulas have changed the planet. In more recent times, in some of your lifetimes, a guy named Martin Luther King illuminated a path for the civil rights movement to walk in a godly way. Some of his axioms come directly out of the Scripture. Here's some of his words. In the process of gaining our rightful place, we must not be guilty of wrongful deeds. Let us not seek to satisfy our thirst for freedom by drinking from the cup of bitterness and hatred. Could those words not apply to every human being who is pursuing something? We must forever conduct our struggle on the high plane of dignity and discipline. We must not allow our creative protests to degenerate into physical violence. Again and again, we must rise to the majestic heights of meeting physical force with soulful force. People have taken and twisted His words the same way that they've taken and twisted Jesus' words from whom Spirit He is quoting. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual powers and authorities in dark places. We need to never degenerate into arguments and violence with one another when the real problem is sinful natures and the author of murder that enslaves the human race. If human beings don't dare to get some secret thing from God, something that they did not know the day before, that they know now in a new and more powerful way, nothing would ever change. Every day would go on much as the day before. Martin Luther King then went on to detail the ills of racial injustice relating to the perverse, inequitable treatment of people of color within our nation. After doing so, he eloquently conveyed his God-given dream with the following words. I want to tell you I'm not reading you this today because I'm a part of some civil rights movement. 
I'm a part of the kingdom of God and it brings freedom to people everywhere. Period. I happen to believe that this is the most anointed speech I've ever heard in American politics. I happen to believe that it was God moving through a flawed individual. But that aside, what you need to know is that this principle is found throughout the Word and it should impact your life today. One man's dream changed the course of a nation. He said, let us not wallow in the valley of despair. I say to you today, my friends, after detailing all of the injustices, he came to a conclusion. We will not wallow in the valley of despair. How long have we spent in that valley, saints? How long have you been beat with the same stick of depression, of inadequacy and insecurity? Today I refuse to wallow in it. I dream for something better. I believe that God's Word promises me something better. Martin Luther King goes on to say, And so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day, down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day, right here in Alabama, little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, that every mountain shall be made low, that the rough places will be made plain, and that the crooked places will be made straight, and that the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh see it together. He goes on to say, this is the hope and the faith with which I travel south. What if this man did not have that dream? When my children went to school today, they would not have half of their classmates. When they walked into a public restroom, they would not see anybody in the mirror that looked any differently than they did. When they went to a water fountain, they would have to read to see whether or not they qualified to drink of its water. What if this man did not have this dream? Now I ask you, what is the source of human dreams? What is the inspiration behind all real freedom? liberty, and justice. The Holy Ghost in us inspires us to be better men and women than we are. The King of the universe has in His possession all the secret things and He is looking to see which of you is noble enough to dream for something different, something better than the oppressive, slave-like regime of sin. God's Word has promised us that there is a day in which death will be rolled back from the nations like a shroud that had enfolded all the peoples, that every tear will be wiped away, that we will enjoy the finest of aged wines and the choicest morsels of meat on that day. But it takes men and women dreaming for that, men and women wanting to know what is my part in the grand plan. What can I do for you today to make something happen? It wasn't enough simply for this man to dream this. He gave his life for this cause. Not him only. What would have happened if the dream that Noah could be obedient to what God had said? If he had not labored for the 120 years to build the ark? Where would the human race be today? What would have happened if Samson had been so focused on his flaws his many inadequacies, that he had not dreamed that it was still possible even without his eyes chained in the temple of a foreign god to do something for God. What would have happened if Abraham 
after receiving the dream that he could be the father of many nations, had given up and not produced the offspring God called him to. We read about these stories. The reason I tell you about the civil rights leader is to put it in our time. Abraham was a man like any other. And in the first year, he believed the promise. And in the second year, he believed and dreamed of the promise. And in the third, and it went on like this for 20 years before he saw any fruit of his dreams. What has happened to your dreams, saints? What are your dreams? I took the men in this church on a retreat. I taught about the calling of God. I brought in others that I trust, that I love and respect from other states to come in and encourage us about the love, the dream, the calling of God in our lives. We took them and put them in little boxes that we called mezuzahs and we hammered them into our doors so that every day when we walked in and out of our houses, we would remember that we were here for a purpose, that we had a dream. What has happened this year? Where are we at? Some of you are fighting and striving and working to accomplish it. Some of you are still sleeping and not dreaming. The church is at its strongest when every member is doing its part when every person is clinging to that reason that they are here. The devil cannot be successful when he lies. He cannot be successful when he whispers in your ear that you're disqualified. He cannot, he must not, because God's plans must succeed. And it requires us. It requires us to do something. We cannot sit in indifference and apathy while our brothers and sisters go to hell. We can't do it. There is a dream that this world will roll back the tyranny of sin and injustice. There is a dream that God has told us that one day we will even see nature itself reconciled. Lambs and lions laying down together. No need for the divisions of mountains and seas and nations. But there will be a holy nation of God's people, a priesthood for the entire planet, and an age of indescribable peace. What are we doing? Do we just go to work today and tomorrow much the same as every day? Or do we cling to a dream that says it can be different? That my spouse doesn't understand me. My children don't understand me. And we get caught up in petty differences. There is a bigger dream. You know, this man who wrote this speech, and I told you already, I think this is the most anointed speech I have ever heard in American history, was fraught with personal difficulties. His detractors, even government agencies, chronicled things that were wrong in his life, like sexual impropriety. The glaring spotlight was on him to discredit him. And you can discredit a man, but you cannot discredit a dream. What God has revealed in your heart that He wants to do in your life cannot be washed away because you stumble or trip or God forbid even fall. Because the gospel that we preach says, though a righteous man falls seven times, yet will he rise again. There is hope for tomorrow. There is hope for our new year. It is time for the saints to begin to dream dreams again. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 4. We will pick up where my sister left off during worship. Are you awake, saints? Oh, yeah. I can do no more. I can do no more. At some point, you cannot make people love Jesus. You cannot make people yearn for Jesus. At some point, there needs to be a desire in you that has been fanned, fanned into flame that all the fury of hell cannot quench that says, I will cling to God's dream for my life. For me, this happened in 1993. Reading the Word, I believed in an instant that it was possible to be like the men and women in the Word. And my life has never been the same. I didn't know what fivefold ministry was. I had no idea what charismatics or spirit-filled Christianity was. And truthfully, I thought all Christians were a bunch of effeminate little pansies. That was my personal opinion. But when I read the Word and I was born again, I began to dream that it was possible for my life to be different. I began to envision being like 
the men and women in the Bible, trusting God and seeing Him move. Saints, it is time for us to dream again. In 2 Corinthians 4, starting in the 6th verse, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Before I read any further, saints, stop and look at me. Everybody in the church, look at me. At some point in your lives, God's light began to shine in the crevices of your heart. In the dark recesses of your soul, a new knowledge appeared. That there was a master in the universe that required your obedience. And you pledged it to Him. That new knowledge required of you action. And you said, yes, Lord, I will ride with you. Or however you said it. Mine was change me. Since that time, you can read now. It says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. As time goes on, we put that dream, that revelation knowledge that God has given us deep down in our hearts. And sometimes we get a little too focused on the clay that is around it. Why would God have told me I could do this? Why would I dare to dream this when I can't even do that? whole purpose for God investing something that cannot be conquered, that cannot be overcome in such a weak, poor, and pitiful vessel as this guy is to show us all when we look in the mirror that God can take your weakness and make it a strength. That God can work through imperfect vessels. Not one apostle. Not one. Not one apostle's wife. The epistles. Was perfect. When you look at their lives, the Scripture contains flaws in every human being there to show us something. When you dream godly dreams, when you reach into the third heaven and take hold of what is rightfully yours, the knowledge of God. Though you're imperfect, though you trip and fall, though you are stumble, God can bring about His purpose in your life. Did Paul and Barnabas get in a fight? A huge one. And God made it work anyway. Did Peter run and hide, cower, at the hour that it seems like it was Christ's greatest need? Yeah. He even resorted to some old fisherman language. I know none of you have ever done that. God's purpose still prevailed in his life. I know exactly what it is like to have a dream bigger than anybody else's and fall more times than I can count. But if you persevere, saints, it cannot be conquered. I've sat in this room and cried tears. And before this one, we built it in another place. And I sat in it and cried tears because I didn't understand how the things God told me would happen could happen. And we stand here today with but a small seed of the dream that God has given me. But it will happen. That's me. Where are you? Have you even planted the seed? Has it broke the surface of the soil? Do you water it and nurture it? Or were you defeated before you even started? He put this treasure in jars of clay to show that it was Him. Get your eyes off your clay and on the treasure that God called you to. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. I told you in jest before we started this message that last night I spent some time on what amounts to a family reunion. I often pick on my heritage in Louisiana. I want you to understand something. I am proud that I grew up in the home that I grew up with with the people that I grew up with. Most good things in my life still reside in or have recently moved from Louisiana. Having said that, 
all of the good things that God has ever done in my life were not tied to geography. They were not tied to a culture. They were not tied to the place that I lived. They were tied to the dream that God gave me. And Paul reminding brothers of that very thing says in the 26th verse, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Speaking of the moment that that revelation first came into your hearts, think to the moment in place that you were at when it happened. Not many of you were wise by human standards. There's a compliment. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world, the despised things, and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before Him. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom of God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. God wants to, and in many cases has, deposited in us the things that only God and you would know about, except that He's revealing it. The things that are secret still belong to Him. The things that have been revealed are yours to protect, to nourish, to carry on. And Proverbs 25, 2 said it is kingly, it is noble, it is honorable for us to seek out even those secret things. When is the last time you got serious direction from God about your life? Don't give up. We serve the kind of God that will speak something to you in 1970 and not bring it about even the seed of it until 1990. He does that. He gets glory through it. Don't get your eyes on your failures. He chose you because you were weak. So that when it comes about, you cannot boast in anything except God. Whoever thought that righteousness had to do with your daily performance? It has to do with your daily trust. Performance is just sometimes indicative of whether or not you really trust it. Turn with me just a couple chapters. I'm going to read you two verses. You're going to be in the fourth chapter. I'm assuming that because you're in this room and you could be in a church hiding in a crowd if you wanted to. You could be in a church that makes you feel good about yourself every Sunday if you wanted to. You could be in a church that had networking opportunities for your business if that's what you wanted to do. I'm assuming that you're in this room today because the God of the universe, in the same way that He did for Peter, has dropped something into your heart. Maybe you don't comprehend it all. Maybe you don't understand it, but in some kind of way, you know that that revelation is the source of life for you. Maybe you don't understand the dreams of mighty rushing rivers or whatever it is that God has given, but something in you innately knows that it's the only real precious thing that you have in your life. Well, Paul had this to say. The fourth chapter, first verse. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Nobody in the history of God's calling got a calling that was bigger than themselves that was accomplished in a single day or a single week. Because there is a time period in our life when we are evaluating the dream God gave us and the dream the world has for us. And there is a tug of war going on in your spirit that says the easy broad road or the difficult narrow road. And God will sit and watch you in that place, trying to mix the blessings of the world with the blessings of the kingdom, watching to see whether in the end it is Him that you want. The Apostle Paul, I'm going to read you this one. The Apostle Paul in Philippians says it this way. 
speaking, approving, faithful. Philippians 3 and the 12th verse. Y'all can stay where you were or you can follow me. I rarely lie when I read directly from the Word. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. There is a reason that Jesus reached His hand from the heavens and into your heart and grabbed you in a moment. There is a reason that He took hold of you. The biggest reason was to see whether you would take hold of Him. This time period of testing goes on throughout our lives. It was not a moment. It was not done the second you were baptized. It may have started in a moment, but it is a lifetime of proving faithful. And as we continually, relentlessly persevere in dreaming the dreams God has for us, letting them control the direction of our lives, He reveals more and more and more and you find yourself walking in that which you thought you could never do. Do you think when Martin Luther King was a little boy, five or six, he knew that his words could change the course of a nation? Change governmental policy? I doubt it. Which of the prophets do you think that while they were in diapers, knew that their words would be read for thousands of years and profoundly affect lives. But at some point, God dropped in their hearts the dream that they could be something more than what they were born as. I'm asking us to begin to stretch, to take hold of that which Christ took hold of us for. Something's required for you to be able to do that. Paul says it here. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, and straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view. You cannot press on towards heavenly dreams. You cannot accomplish the impossible for God. You cannot walk in a supernatural way if you are always looking behind you, second-guessing every move, whining about everything that happened and every leaf that blew in your face along the way. At some point, we have to say, nevertheless, God, I am going forth. Nothing will stop me. Nothing will get in my way. I will not back down. At some point, you have to determine the kind of perseverance that says only eight people in the entire human race stand with me. And I've been working for 119 years with no sight of success but I will not quit. And then the heavenly rains begin to fall. Somewhere we have to develop the kind of character that provides hope to other people through perseverance. Somewhere we have to take our stand and say the dream is worth fighting for. The dream is worth not giving up or quitting. Somewhere we have to be willing to die to our selfish pride and our hurt feelings and all the things that weren't done for us or to us or through us and just grab hold of the dream again. I know what it's like to foul up my workspace so much that it looks like nothing could get done. I have a way of solving one problem and creating two. I can be cold and analytical and at times vindictive and mean. Sometimes I resort to get things done with a very heavy hand. And yet, there is still hope for me because I'm learning every day. I'm becoming the salt of the earth. I'm learning even to season my words with salt. There is hope for the dream God has put in us. Look to your friends on your left at this moment. There's hope for the dreams in their lives. Look to your friends on the right. Their godly destiny still stands. It doesn't matter what they did yesterday. It doesn't matter how much they neglected your feelings or forgot your birthdays or whatever it might be. The dream still stands. The question is, will you stand with the dream or will you fall asleep and let it perish? 
even as we talk about natural dreaming, let's be honest, you have those that probably occurred because you ate too much pizza. You have those that occur because you watch too much television. You have those that occur out of the yearnings of your heart. You have those that occur out of fear, falling dreams, werewolves eating your dreams, whatever it is. And every once in a while you have a dream that is so powerful you can't forget it for days. The dream that is the kingdom needs to be something that you not forget for your entire life. That in your darkest hour will pull you out of despair. The dream that God will accomplish through you more than you could ask for or imagine will sustain you if you learn to nurture it. There are times I've had that and nothing else. And it sustained me. I had a dream. I found out something about this dreaming process, and you can turn to Genesis 37. The single best example in all of the Bible is a man named Joseph. And if you've heard this before, strap yourself in the seat, put a big smile on your face, and hear it again. You need it. <clears throat> the dreaming process is very much, the calling process is very much like a bow and arrow. You start off with the thing in your hand, the bow, and the arrow in your hand. And they're both in the master's hand and so very close to each other. You can see your launching point. The moment I was born again, I could see myself doing the things that men and women did in the Bible. And the first year I was born again, I spent all of my time reading and studying and wondering why I wasn't a pastor yet. I did that for the second year and the third year and the fourth and the fifth as well. <laughs> in my secular jobs, I watched the clock in the calendar with the anticipation that any moment full-time ministry would be here. Some of you worked with me during those times. must have been frustrating for you. I didn't have a clear understanding that just because the dream was so powerful and so vivid and so worth fighting for didn't mean that it wasn't going to happen in a moment. In fact, like a bow and arrow, there is a process of drawing back from the thing with which God has called you to to gain necessary strength and experience that will ultimately propel you forward to the calling. I had no concept of that. What is worse not being very acquainted with timelines in the Bible yet. I had no idea that this had been required of every man of faith in the Bible I was reading about because I turned a page and didn't realize 20 years of a man's life had passed. I thought, God spoke it. Next page, it happened. And that tends to be how we tell testimonies. I was praying for a baby and I knew God was going to give me a baby and nobody said I was going to get a baby. But now look, I got a baby. And by the way, there were 14 years in between there. That doesn't happen. We see the struggle and we see the success for our encouragement. But we forget about the struggle. When Brother Casey stood up and testified about his wife's dramatic, godly, powerful healing of cancer, he shared about the struggle because that's not what you hear. You don't hear what it's like to stare at the medical bills, to go to doctor after doctor, to do everything that you know how to do, and yet it linger. We don't hear those testimonies very often. So what happens to us is we get the dream and we're excited and we set off like it's a hundred-yard dash and then find out it is the first hundred yards of a marathon. And what happens to most who set that kind of pace? I can tell you, the guys I got born again with are not with me today. Most grow cold. And we do this polite churchy thing where we say, oh, well, they'll come back around. Maybe, and maybe their lives are unworthy of the call that's on them, and they will just go to hell. How can you say that and be so callous? Because the dream is worse fighting and living for it. I have a very hard time. People say, but my loved one died and I'm not sure they were born again. Look, I understand. But the time to consider that was while they were alive. 
Now that they're dead, they were either worthy of God or not worthy of God, and they showed that by their trust in Him. Get over it. I'd rather stand with God than with the dead guy. Do you think that's not biblical? See, those are more of those heavy-handed words. What did Jesus tell the guy who wanted to go back and bury his father? Joseph is given a dream in the 37th chapter of Genesis. Verse 1, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17. You got that? Elizabeth, you hear me? 17, two years older than you. 17 was tending the flocks of his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. He brought their father a bad report, bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made him a richly ornamented robe. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. The favor of the father invariably brings the hatred or wrath of the brothers. It does. You know why? Because when you know how much your daddy God loves you, you are willing to believe he would do anything for you. And you walk around proud about that, excited about that, as if you were wearing some kind of big, bright, shiny coat that nobody else had because you understand daddy God loves you. And the rest are so consumed with self-mortification and insecurity that they walk around wearing a garment that the Bible calls despair. So they hate you. What's that guy got to be so happy about? I told one man one time, hey, leave the Christian alone. He's smiling all the time. He must be okay. But any kind of idiot can smile. That ought to really make you question who the idiot is, my friend. That man I said that to is still very unhappy to this day. The Christian I said that about, not only is doing good, He's in ministry and having babies and watching them get healed. Those that cling to the dream succeed. It's a whole lot easier to walk around in despair, hating, cynicism. But God has called us to something more. When his brother saw that the father loved verse 5, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves out of grain in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. Now, let's roll forward the clock a little bit. Brandon shows up in church. Brothers, sisters, I had a dream and we were all in the church and the pulpit was empty and all of you fell on your face before the pulpit, and I was standing at it. What do you think Brandon did? Got drunk last night or something, right? Something's wrong. This would be arrogant if it wasn't true. Is this dream bigger than this 17-year-old boy? Of course it is. That's how you know it came from God. Is he delusional? Or is he just persuaded by God? See, faith will always risk something. And it usually usually seems to border on that which is irrational. How could you, a regular 17-year-old kid, think that even mom and dad are going to bow down to you? How could you do that? Unless it came from God. How do you know, friends, whether it came from God? You better know something of His character. You better know what it is to fellowship with His Spirit. You better know how to weed out your selfish ambitions from a selfless God calling. I tell you, I talk with Christians and I try to inspire godly dreams bigger than life. And every once in a while you'll hear somebody say, that's right, I believe it, and this is what God said to me. And you go, "Eh, there's way too much of you in your dreams. God will call you to do things 
that are ultimately to save the lives of others, not to lift you up. You know who I bet didn't even know that at the time he had the dream? Joseph. But some years being drawn back in the bowstring, it taught him. See, the fallacy is that we are ready the moment we have the dream to perform it. The truth is you're just ready to conceive it. You are not at all ready to perform it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of the dream he had. Then he had another dream. you got to love him for that. I'd quit telling people. And he told his brothers, Listen, don't you love when the youngest kid in the room tells you all, Shut up, i got to tell a story. That wouldn't get a good vibe from you, would it? He said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him. I got all my relatives in one room. But I want to tell you, when God gives you a dream, often he only gives you the faith for that dream. To everybody else, it looks like something else. You better know who your God is, friends. You better know that you have learned through discipline how to hear from Him. Because godly dreams will always require you to go against the grain. If it wasn't against the grain, it would have already gotten done. But it didn't. And that's why God's given it to you. What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. I bet Mary didn't like the dream the angels told her her son would have. But she treasured it up in her heart, didn't she? And it surely came to pass. Joseph was 17 years old when this happened. Flip a few pages. And you'll be in Genesis 39. He's no longer 17. We don't know how old he is. But in yet another chapter, he'll be 30. So we're somewhere between 17 and 30 now. And in Genesis 39, look at verse 6. If I can find verse 6. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had with Joseph in charge. Along the way, Fulfilling your dream comes small steps that prepare you. Joseph could not run a country. He could not be the economic, agricultural, governmental, and in one way even spiritual savior of the world if he did not even learn to manage a household well. And his household had already swallowed him up and spit him out. So what did God do? Put him in another household. And everything was in his care. So, whoo, I'm ready, baby. Look at this. Everything's prospering under me. I am ready. Then he hits a little bump in the road. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. All of you can relate to that, right? Judah, you can relate to that, can't you? Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife, took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has he entrusted to my care. Did you hear that? Entrusted? Just like Paul said, his master had entrusted him with things. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against you? No, it doesn't say that, does it? Sin against Potiphar. No, it doesn't say that, does it? It says sin against God. When you've been entrusted with the secret things of God and they're supposed to be dictating the direction of your life, your sin is not just sin against the people it involves anymore. It's sin against God because you are erring from the direction that he is trying to shoot you. And Joseph said, no. Now think back, men. 
when you were 17. You've been in slavery for a little while. Not just to sin and your hormones, but in this case, literal slavery. Nobody's around. This woman keeps coming to you day after day. How do you handle it? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. I want to tell you something. I think the secret to his success was not that he refused to go to bed with her. I think that it's he refused to even be in the same room with her. Sin always starts small and grows, friends. starts with a thought in most cases. He cut it off at its root. He said, I'm not only not going to bed with you, I'm not going to be in the same room with you. Why? Because his life had a bigger calling on it than the pleasures of a moment. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Would God ever beat his bride? How many times have you ever heard that? I don't know. He'll let his servants run out of the house bleeding and naked. Sometimes to escape the sinful corruption and pollution of this world, you get stripped of everything, but it is worth fleeing temptation. He said, but I suffered loss. You never suffered the loss of your dream. You just lost the cloak, my friend. He said, but I got my house going. I got my job going. I got this. Do you still have the dream that God planted in your heart, the calling? then you are never without. That's just stuff. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You say it, but do we believe it? I know what it's like to drive away in a moving truck and cry over the trees I planted at my first house. Or drive past it and see my kids go, but Dad, that's our house. I know exactly what it's like. But you know what? I will run in the direction of my calling and away from anything that pulls against it, no matter whether it leaves me naked or not. Better to have vegetables with the righteous than meat with the wicked. The Proverbs teach it, and it is absolutely true. He had a dream that caused him the loss of his family relationships. He had a dream that caused him the loss of the success that he had in Potiphar's house. Now he goes into jail. I don't have time to read this to you because we're running short. And in jail, God puts him in charge and he slowly begins to prosper again. And years are passing, friends. It's been a long time since he saw the sun, the moon, and the stars bow at his feet in a dream. But somewhere, it rested in his heart. And he began to help people figure out their callings and their dreams. Not that he had attained his already, but he took hold of that which took hold of him. And he was walking like it was true. So two men come to him and present their dreams. And he helps them get prepared and equipped for their callings. One's going to hell, the other's going to heaven. And he gets it accurate. And he says, hey, when you reach your calling, one of you restored in the palace and one of you hanging from the gallows, remember me. But they don't. Along the way, while we're being pulled back in this bowstring, we feel stripped of everything. Everything I worked for is gone. Blah, blah, blah. Wham, wham, wambulance. And now nobody even remembers all the years that I've worked so hard. It wasn't a man who gave us the calling or the dream. It was God. And He remembers. And He hears our every cry. So we move now to Genesis 41. Joseph is 30 years old in Genesis 41. And then Genesis 41, we'll pick up in the 41st verse, but before then I want you to remember, from the age of 17 to now the age of 30, this young man's made some mistakes. He spoke up when he should have shut up. I imagine he made lots of mistakes that are not recorded but his dream still stood. And when it counted, 
and it came down to forfeiting his godly dream for pleasures of this earth, he ran from the pleasures of this earth. And now years have passed. He's been drawn so far from the calling that not only is he not reigning in his father's house or reigning in the universe, He's falsely imprisoned and a slave in a foreign country. It does not get much further from what God told him would happen. When you pull back a bowstring, it takes some time and it takes some strength. But when you release it, it takes an instant. One day, friends, you wake up and you realize, I am in the very center of what God has called me to do. And although it was confusing, although all around me was chaos, I can see now what God was doing. How many of you have had, in retrospect, the ability to look and see that God worked through the difficult times in your life? Well, what does that mean about the difficult times you face right now? The only problem with calling your calling or your godly dream a bowstring is that we forget your life is many arrows, not just one. You have a calling in Baton Rouge. You have a calling in Sugarland. You have a calling in your teenage years. You have a calling in your 20s. Your life has a direction, but along the way there are many tasks for which you were chosen and purposed for. And sometimes you get further from them and sometimes you get closer to them, but that godly vision has got to be what drives you. In the 41st chapter, 41st verse. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his finger and put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes, no matter what he does. Because of his attitude, this young man succeeds, and he keeps getting nicer and nicer things added to his life. And put a gold chain around his neck. Probably where Mr. T got the idea. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command. And men shouted before him, Make way! If you were going to say make way in the New Testament, you know what you would say? Anybody? Prepare the way. Prepare the way. Doesn't that remind you of something? You think that maybe in the New Testament when you have somebody preparing the way before the Savior of the world, it had been foreshadowed in the Older Testament? Thus he put him in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word. Whose word? Joseph's word. No one will lift hand or foot in Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name zaphnath paneah and gave him his daughter Asenath. Joseph was 30 years old when all this happened. Now he's king of the known world, given the title Savior, and has people preparing his way before him. You know the story. Time goes by. We've got famine. We have more years before his brothers show up. But eventually, what God says would happen in Genesis 45, he's 38, 39 years old at this point, does happen. And in Genesis 45, he makes himself known to his brothers and listen to this godly revelation that comes through being drawn back in the bowstring. And if you can tell me that at 38 or 39 he knew this, and at 17 he also knew it, I don't see how it could be possible. He learned something between 17 and 38 or 9. And listen to what he learned. Then Joseph said, this is verse 4, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. When we are young and called, we think we are young and called for our benefit. What the drawing back process is, is teaching you how your God calling and dream serves mankind. And the reason we're not ready in our first year, and we might be ready in our, for him, this was 22 years later, 
is because that fuller revelation has set in. And now it's not selfish, it's selfless. So everything that is an obstacle ultimately is something that propels us because it teaches us. I have two last scriptures for you and we close. One of them short and one of them's long. You want the short one or the long one? Good. That was the right answer. Turn with me to Psalm 138. How many of you have said, My calling? The calling on my life. My calling. You can tell me. How many of you have ever said that? Me. Me. You might have been quoting me. Psalm 138 teaches us something else. It is not your purpose. It is not your calling. Truthfully, it's not even your life. You mortgaged it back to the bank called Jesus. And now what you have is credited righteousness, credited standing with Him. But you owe Him your life. And in verse 8 of Psalm 138, the Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. Whose purpose is it? His. It's done through you, but it is His dream and His purpose for you. God desires to reconcile the entire planet to Himself and you, each of you, from youngest to oldest, have a part to play. It's time to dream that dream. Last scripture. Turn with me to Hebrews. While you're turning to Hebrews, you need to know that Matthew 17.20, Matthew 19.26, and Luke 1.37 all teach that the things that are impossible for us are possible with God. And if your dream seems impossible, that's good. That's how you know you're dependent upon God. But we're not going there. We're going to Hebrews. We're going to be in the 10th chapter. And then we'll close our last sermon of the year. Yesterday, my wife had a high fever. A horrible report from doctors. Steroids, antibiotics. It felt like she was going to die. Today, she sat through this whole message excited, learning, and ready to go. Next time you are sick and in bed, or just tired and in bed, or sick of me and in bed, or your car won't start because you're in the bed and it's in the yard, or whatever excuse comes to mind, you remember the only kind of people that ever truly make it and succeed in the kingdom are those that persevere. In Hebrews 10, the 35th verse, So do not throw away your confidence. You ask a six-year-old what he wants to be. What kind of answers do you get? Fireman, policeman, astronaut. No thought that they might not be able to do it, is there? That simply dream it. As they get older and get filled with your fears and insecurities, they begin to believe that they can't do it. We need to not throw away the confidence we had the day we were born again that God can do anything. Not just in somebody else's life, but in our life. And friends, whether 8 or 80, it's not too late. It starts today. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what has He has promised. For in just a very little while, He who is coming will come and not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if He shrinks back, I will not be pleased with Him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who are believed, who have believed and are saved. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Skip to the 32nd verse. What has happened between that verse and this one is we have chronicled men and women who have had dreams just like your dreams, who experienced setbacks just like your setbacks, but persevered. And now in the 32nd verse, he says, And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of flames, and escaped the edge of swords, whose weakness was turned 
into strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Goes on to talk about women receiving back their dead. Life-changing global events that occurred because people dared to trust in the dream that God gave them. And he finishes up with these words, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And I tell you, church, at the end of 2007, it is time to throw off anything that would hinder you, be it sickness or finances or confidence or whatever may have warred against your calling. Throw it off and run the race with which God called you. He took hold of you so that you would take hold of Him. Don't let go. In 2008, some will bear fruit and some will die out. The question is, which will you be? I want to be surrounded by God's people who fix their eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, spurring one another on, constantly saying, don't give up, sweetheart. You can do it. We all need it. And as iron sharpens iron, one man will sharpen another and every arrow will hit its target. This is what we're called to. It's what Jesus called the abundant life. Stand up. Let's pray.